Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. For many of us who've got into that mindset of must be strong, must be you know self-sufficient, all this good stuff, the downside, as you said, is that sometimes it becomes very difficult to drop that shield, that armor, and let people in. And that is obviously very, very destructive for your mental health. That is Dr. Sunya Luthar talking about the vital role that real and vulnerable connections with others plays in our mental health and resilience. Dr. Luther is Professor Emerita at Columbia Teachers College, the founder and executive director of Authentic Connections Groups for Mothers in High-Stress Situations, and co-founder and chief science officer of Authentic Connections. Dr. Luther is a pioneer in the creation of in-person and virtual groups for women and mothers in the high-stress world of medicine, and she has shown scientifically how critical it is to have a separate space in a trusted, safe, and supportive environment outside of home and work for our mental health and resilience. Her work underscores how our fast-paced, high-stress world often leads to isolation and loneliness, and how real connections with others is the glue that holds our mental well-being together. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Today, we welcome Dr. Sunia Luthar to the Resilient Surgeon podcast. Dr. Luthar is originally from India, where she earned her bachelor and master's degree in child development from Lady Irwin College of Delhi University. Sunia then came to Yale University, where she earned her PhD in clinical and developmental psychology, and then stayed on as a member of the Department of Psychiatry and the Child Study Center. Sunia then moved from Yale to the Teachers College at Columbia University from 1997 to 2013, where not only did she become a full professor and the senior advisor to the Teachers College Provost, but she was also elected by her faculty colleagues to be the chair of the Department of Counseling and Clinical Psychology. 
In 2014, Sunia moved to Arizona to become the Foundation Professor of Psychology at Arizona State University, a position she held until 2019. Sunia continues to be a Professor Emerita at Columbia University. Sunia's career has been devoted to studying vulnerability and resilience in families and children affected by poverty and mental illness. Importantly, and particularly relevant to today's conversation is Sunia's expertise and national recognition for her work in identifying the impact of a high pressure environment on children who grew up in affluent households and who attend what are called high achieving schools. It turns out that having it all can be a recipe for a lot of serious mental health problems for our children if we are not careful. Her work delineating the risks of high pressure on our children has gained national recognition and has been widely cited in the New York Times, CNN, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, NPR, and the Atlantic Magazine. More recently, however, and one of the main reasons I am so excited to have Sunia on the podcast is her development of what she calls authentic connection groups for women and mothers, especially physician mothers, which we will be exploring in detail on today's podcast. Sunia, welcome to the Resilient Surgeon podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. It's such a pleasure to be here. Sunia, can you tell us about your early years in India, a little bit about your family, and how you became interested in resilience in families and children? Certainly. I uh, remember the day that, like it was yesterday, Michael, I was standing in my grandmother's kitchen, actually her dining room uh, yeah. in New Delhi, India. I was 15 years old in high school, and I just finished reading this book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. You know, the little yellow paperback, I don't know if you remember it. I, I do. I finished and I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a child psychologist. So that was- uh, That was the moment. That was the moment and haven't wavered since, went on to mm. pursue it. Um, in terms of my family, uh, my mother raised us essentially, we, mostly as a single mother. My father left us when we were quite uh, young. I was in, I think, high school. So yeah. I was very close to my grandmother. Um, we spent a lot of time together. And even as a child, I think, became quite sensitized to how much she hurt on behalf of her daughter and her granddaughters, that would be us, yeah. and yeah. how powerless one felt in trying to relieve her uh, empathic, as you mentioned, contagion of stress. Yeah. That was, so these two things, one was that decision, and secondly, becoming so acutely aware that as, 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 as old and as dignified, as educated, and as powerful as any person can be, they still made quote, mothering which is what mm -hmm. I saw in my mother, I saw my grandmother, mm -hmm. I see, saw myself, I see my daughter, all of us over the years. So that's a sort yeah. of long answer to your question, but the- Oh no, that's interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so it sounds as if the stage was sort of set for your like receptivity to that small book, I'm okay, you're okay. Is that, is that accurate? Is that part of the reason that resonated so highly with you? I, it must have done, yes. I mean, I cannot remember the details of the book, I must confess. It's on my shelf here. I bought one <laughs> at a thrift shop some time ago. But yes, I believe you're right that there was, a, a, I think I was receptive to it at the time, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, now you have said that a mother feels her child's pain 10 times that of the child. That certainly 
resonates with me and my own experience. I have six children. And as a father, I, I, can, I feel that pain much more. So this is very true for me. And I, I think it's got to be especially true for mothers. And my experience with my wife is, certainly validates that. So, you know, not only do mothers have to contend with that particular stress, but they clearly face many other significant additional stresses and challenges. In your experience, what are some of the unique emotional and time challenges that professional mothers uh, face in the, in the workplace? So there's this uh, terrific book called A Second Shift, which speaks about basically the women uh, of whom you speak, uh, which would include your wife and myself. Uh, I assume mm -hmm. that she was working too while she was raising her yes. kids, as was I. Um, the job is full of high expectations. Uh, stakes can be high, uh, pressures therefore are high. And then you come home to an equally pressure-filled job because our kids are leading these uh, high expectation, uh, upwardly mobile, if you will, kind of lifestyles, even as early mm -hmm. as elementary school. So the expectations just shift from the work setting to the home setting, but they're every bit as intense. We recently wrote a paper called about invisible labor. It's about being the captain of the ship and how mothers generally tend to assume that role or are, are given that role, so to speak, uh, by mutual agreement or otherwise which means managing the household. It's not just a question of dividing chores and saying, you take out the garbage and I change the diapers. This is about who oversees the whole, whole show there and keeps mm -hmm. the ship moving smoothly. That takes an enormous amount of emotional work in itself. Managing the children's emotions, being in charge of that, being vigilant for that, their teachers, their friends. This is all a great deal of emotional work that is generally, quote, invisible. So to sum up, you have this, and especially in work settings, like you're a physician, uh, I'm a psychologist, in work settings where your, your work calls for caretaking, taking care of others, uh, that is the crux of what you do. Then you come back at home and you resume caretaking or go back to your second shift of caretaking of different kind with equally, if not higher stakes, right, as they're your children. That I mean, this is literally burning the candle at both, both ends, is it not? Unless literally, there is some, literally. Yeah. Exactly. Unless there is some active uh, replenishment. So another paper I wrote, Michael, was called Who Mothers Mommy? And that's sort of a rhetorical question. We mm -hmm. <laughs> met a number of women who say nobody. Um, and it's not, these are even women with very supportive, loving spouses, husbands, and so on. What they say is what, and this is what research says, what a man gives to his wife by way of loving and caretaking is different from what a wife gives to her husband by way of loving and caretaking. So this mm -hmm. quote, mother love is different from quote, father love in, in many ways. And we don't need to go yes. into that. But yeah. that is something that women do give out, again, to just put it in one sentence, give out a lot of at home and in, in professions such as ours, in the workplace, and the question is, where does that replenishment for them come? Who takes care of them? Yes, boy, that's right. And it's certainly uh, my wife's experience. And I, I just think back to the shocking levels of stress because she's a high-risk obstetrician mm. and the shocking levels of stress around the nannies and the you know, the children at school and making events and being late. And, you know, I mean, the litany of 
stressors was just staggering at times. It's so funny as, as you say that, I'm beginning to have my heartbeat is, <laughs> heartbeat is actually increasing. But the moment you said the nannies and the childcare and the events, I could, I can distinctly remember just yeah. the amount of anxiety would provoke to say, well, this uh, caregiver's dropped out or not available or just something goes wrong in this very delicate balance that one has to talk about 10 balls in one air, yeah. uh, in the air yeah. at one time. Yeah. One falls and then it does throw you into a state of panic, but you have to keep yeah. it together somehow. So yes, yeah. allostatic load and then some. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because uh, as I've sort of interrogated uh, the effect of the surgical culture, because now this is a podcast for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. And so the listeners are cardiothoracic surgeons. And I've interrogated kind of the impact of surgical culture uh, on my way of seeing the world and interacting with the world. And I, I've come up with this sort of four habits that I was inculcated with. Saying yes to everything, uh, discipline uh, to keep going no matter what, uh, to be strong habit so I can pretend I'm okay even when I'm not, emotional labor. And then the fourth one, self-sufficiency. I don't need help. Uh, I can do this all on my own. And, and I, I think these are all very valuable traits However, like anything that are anything that's valuable, too much of it is no longer valuable. I'm curious about your thoughts about the impact of things like self-sufficiency and the sense that it's weak to look for help outside of yourself and, uh, and how that may play a role in any of these you know, struggles that women or men have in this arena. So you mentioned the, well, you mentioned men, but I, I, I venture to say that those four things that you mentioned, saying yes to everything, keep going, be strong, be independent and self-sufficient. I imagine this is true for women in your field as well. Oh, no, I'm, I, if I mentioned men, I didn't mean that. I meant uh, any cardiothoracic yeah. surgeon. Yeah. yeah. Or any surgeon for that matter. Any surgeon. That's right. And I would even go one step further to say people who are used to being in charge of something that is high stakes, where mm. our job basically demands those four things. Uh, you do get into a habit uh, of leading your life in that way. The, when I asked you the question earlier about, so what happens, who replenishes you? Too often, unfortunately, the answer is nobody because no one, so how should I say this, cajoles you, helps you to get into a space where you can be open to a slightly different way of living, which is not permanently, to be completely vulnerable to everybody, not long-term, but for a little while, open yourself up. If you don't open, how can you get? If you don't ask, how can you get? See, so for many of us who've got into that mindset of must be strong, must be you know, self-sufficient, all this good stuff. The downside, as you said, is that sometimes it becomes very difficult to drop that shield, that armor and let people in. And that is obviously very, very destructive for your mental health. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Uh, you know, and then you focus so heavily on the role of connection with others as being a foundational aspect of our resilience as human beings. And certainly, you know, the literature on loneliness and connection validates that, you know, that these problems of loneliness and lack of connection are profoundly bad for our health and our long-term, you know, ability to thrive and, and be healthy. 
and I think that that kind of loneliness is just ubiquitous in the world of the, as you say, high stakes performance. And I mean, I, I formed a group four years ago with a group of surgeons. Uh, and it, the reason I, I bring this up is because I found that outside of work and family to have a place to go to where you can actually talk about your challenges and your stresses and your emotions is possibly one of the most powerful things I've ever done, both for myself uh, and for the surgeons that are in this group. I, I really feel like it's the first time that they've had a place to breathe emotionally, you know, and, and really kind of let their guard down and, and be them to be themselves. And of course, that's what drew me to you is, is your work with authentic connections. And you've replicated that. No, you've not replicated. You've taken that, that concern and formalized it into these authentic connection groups. Can you tell us a little bit more about the authentic connection groups and, and where did the idea come from and how the whole process got started? So I have been studying resilience pretty much since I came to graduate school uh, at Yale in 1984. And my dissertation was published in 1990, was called Resilience and Vulnerability, a study of inner city kids. That's where I started out my work with kids in dire poverty and eventually their mothers. So uh, let me just give you the single take home message from resilience research over the last 60, 70 years, not just mine, obviously, but everybody's. Resilience rests fundamentally on relationships. That's it. It's not on your coping skills. It's not an executive function. If there's one thing you've got to pick is to have that strong, supportive relationship network, especially people who are closest to you. So that's one thing. As I mentioned, I worked with inner city kids and moms. Uh, back while I was still at Yale Psychiatry, I developed this intervention called Relational Psychotherapy Mothers Group. Uh, this was for moms who were in methadone maintenance clinics who would have histories of uh, obviously substance abuse, but also serious mental illness, many of whom were very, very alone in their lives and often in abusive relationships and such. A and tough, my, tough, tough arena, very you know, difficult. Yeah. Parenthetically, let me see that our research has shown the challenges on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. There are also challenges at the high end of the high mm -hmm. stakes, high pressure jobs. They're just different, but there are high pressures on both sides. Anyhow, back to these women, um, my office at the time was in the methadone clinic and I chatted with a couple of them. And I think my son was then just about a year or so old. And I realized Michael talking to these women, my goodness, they love their kids every bit as much as I do. Mm -hmm. And that was another one of those epiphany moments. And I mm -hmm. began talking with them more and realized that the, even the, the, it's so stigmatized you know, what they are. They said, we, even in the clinic, we walk around feeling like we've got A for addict on our foreheads. So I began to think about developing this intervention. Long story short, I did with my mentor at the time, Bruce Johnsonville, who was no more, so, uh, two clinical trials, uh, neither funded. And basically they were six months long, once a week. They're based in mutual respect, empathy, support, kindness, giving these women a sense of, be loving and loving. and and, yeah. and empower empowering them and both trials were successful but there's one lesson that i did learn which is you have to build in a network of supports that these women will use when you your intervention ceases or finishes it's not good enough to give them this lovely period of six months of great comfort and love and then just get up and go 
assuming that they, you know, develop networks in their own lives. So now you go fast forward to the years I was in Colombia and when I got to Arizona and I met this, I've been thinking about this, got to do this some more. And basically met this colleague at Mayo Clinic here in Arizona who said, you want to do this with a highly stressed mom? Well, how about physicians? And off we went. So instead of a 24 week uh, intervention, because the risks uh, for these women were a little less severe, it's a 12 week intervention, one hour a week and done on the premises of Mayo Clinic by, uh, by someone who's obviously trained and experienced in, in group work. And that has now been published with the original Mayo sample of physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs and a second trial in Mayo, Minnesota with nursing leadership. Plus we've got the virtual group. So right. basically to summarize all this, I say there was an early recognition about this need for mothers to be mothered, whether it was among these women who were substance abuse, with substance abuse histories, they loved their kids, they needed that kind of loving themselves. Same thing applied here for these very well-educated, powerful, very highly skilled physicians and such. And our job was to make sure that that mothering happened and happened in a natural everyday way. I'm very fond of saying good psychotherapy helps, but nothing helps as much as real love in real life, which is what these groups do because they give, it's not just what the facilitator does, Michael, it's what the women give each other. One woman says something that is difficult and just seeing the love and compassion spontaneously coming from all the others is very powerful in making you feel, what? I feel seen and loved for the person I truly am at my core. That's beautiful. And, you know, it reminds me, and this was such a revelation to me when I read this, because we talk a lot about what love is, all right? You know, love is passion, attraction, you know, all these things and companionate love. And when I read this by Thich Nhat Hanh, who said that love is understanding someone. And if, if what you said, being seen, heard, valued, to me, that was the best definition of what I think real love is. And, and I suspect that's what the groups provide on such a big, in such a big way. That's exactly right. To the point that the bonds become so strong, there are groups that have continued to meet two years later. They meet either once a week or twice a week, but they're in touch, they're supporting each other. Mm-hmm. I just got a text yesterday from one group, but it's been two years later and they're updating me on all that's going on in their lives. I can't How wonderful. It's really magical. Really wonderful. It is magical, yeah. And the same magic has occurred in my surgeon's men's group. I mean, these these uh, guys, you know, they've been at this with me for four years, despite very busy practices, families, one, one has eight, eight children, mm-hmm. but they show up every two weeks for the group. And it's a testimony to how powerful the experience is. Well, so <clears throat> what clearly then, you know, women mothers are at higher risk for mental health challenges and burnouts and burnout. And what, what is the literature or your experience suggest are some of the particular unique challenge or not challenges, but experiences they may, you know, have in the mental health or burnout realm as physician uh, mothers? Well, some of it goes back to what you were saying with your four principles of what, you know, you're supposed to be, Mm -hmm. right? The strong and independent one. You know, we both agree that this process that happens in our authentic connections groups is magical. 
the flip side to that, or the caveat, if you will, is that it's also a little bit scary to get to that level of openness and vulnerability. Yes. So it takes some work to get there. It does not happen. In fact, for the the more successful you are, the more skilled you are, the more you're responsible, the harder it is. So um, that is probably one of the biggest challenges. And the way this intervention is set up is that there are session topics and we ease into it. I keep saying, but baby steps. We don't walk in and talk about uh, the things that hurt us most deeply, our biggest traumas or fears. Very mm. slowly, we begin to learn. It's like learning a new language. Uh, learning, learning. Uh, we take little steps at a time, and by the end of twelve weeks, it's sort of taken root. So I think that would be one of the biggest biggest challenges is just mo- t- moving to that way of being. Aside from that, is I, I, I hate to say this. Well, I mean, it's not just the women who are doing this to themselves. Expectations, societal expectations, even in mm. marriages, heterosexual marriages as loving as people are, there is this paper, as I said, on invisible labor. There is a disproportionate amount of emotional labor that uh, mothers, women are responsible for. And some of this we take on ourselves, there's no question, because we feel like, hey, I just get it, so I'll do it. But there are times when it is, um, it's, it's, it's put upon women more so, more so than it should be. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about it. Just in the circumstances. Right. right. So that's number two. Number three is empathy. There are costs to empathy. By its very definition, Michael, empathy means holding the pain of another. Right. Right. So there's been research on mothers and fathers again, and sensitivity to an infant's cries and how mothers tend to respond more quickly or or intensely than, than do fathers. This is all great for kids. Right, that's right. responsive mom, but there is something as uh, called an empathic overload that uh, just becomes too much the pain that you're carrying. So that's yet another thing that's a challenge. And a final thing is, uh, women are more prone to rumination than our men. When we get depressed or anxious, we tend to mull over it. Um, and the kicker is that the more intelligent you are, man or woman, the more likely you are to be ruminative. Um, mm-hmm. Verbal skills, intelligence tends to grow with self-reflection, introspection, and therefore yes. rumination. <laughs> I rattled off about five, five reasons why <laughs> a, a woman physician or surgeon might be at particular risk uh, yeah. for all the skills that she has and all the strengths that she has. Right. The strengths can be our, our problems too. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me think about the idea of emotional emotional contagion. Mm -hmm. And so as a parent, uh, if you are struggling and stressed and ruminating, and you may not be overtly, uh, you know, carrying on or whatever, but just the, you know, children are so tuned into the emotional status of their parents. And so it seems that it's not only for the mother, but it's also for the child to do this kind of work. Uh, do you have a thought about that and the pot- potential pernicious impact of emotional contagion on children? I have many thoughts on that. Uh, <laughs> and actually, uh, both tied to, there was early research that I did with the substance abusing moms. So Michael, we worked with the moms in the clinics once a week for six months, never saw the kids in any kind of therapy or, uh, Hmm. and we assessed the kids beginning and end and six months follow up on their ratings of mom's parenting behaviors. 
and wow. significant effects on their ratings improvements on the kids' ratings. Wow. Parenting. We had significant improvements of clinicians who are blind to which group the mothers were in, control group or intervention group. Improvements in clinicians, blind ratings of mothers' mental health. There is a big spillover effect, right? When a woman is doing well emotionally, as opposed to when she's struggling, there is a spillover effect into all of our roles. So that was one very powerful piece of evidence. And the second was our research comparing moms of substance abusing mom with moms who are depressed, uh, histories of depression. And would you know that kids of the latter were struggling more than were kids of moms who, were, who had addiction histories? Hmm. You might ask yourself, why would that be? But I've worked a lot with mothers who are depressed, and God knows I've been depressed myself as a mom at times, as, as was mm-hmm. many of us have struggled with that. Depression makes this gray cloud that subsumes, yes. yes. pervades the whole household. And it's confusing for a child and often makes us feel as, as children, what can I do? How can I make, make this better? Uh, as opposed to when mom goes off on a bender and you see the bottles, not to minimize that in any way, but there's a right. reason that you can put your finger on saying, this is why mom's being weird. So this maternal depression or paternal depression in our recent papers, we've seen kids in the high achieving schools, kids' ratings of their father's depression plays up in their own internalizing symptoms and so on. So I could not agree with you more as hard as we might try. And I think we all do try hard to put on a good game face and say, I'm not going to let my pain show to my kids. The reality is if you have intense pain and you are struggling, uh, and this goes on for a while, your children will pick it up. They your will pick it up. Will, they yeah. will detect it and they will worry. And they may not have the words to articulate mom what's going on. They might just have this uneasy feeling. But the, the truth of the matter is, as I think you were suggesting with your question, Michael, listen, if you don't want to do this for yourself, this being get this loving mothering for yourself, uh, to it for the sake of your children. <laughs> right. Whatever the motivation is, it's going to serve both parties. Exactly right. I would love that you say, heck, I'm a human being too. I didn't stop being Sonia a human being when I had my first child. That's I'm right. Yeah. Or Nina's mother. I'm a human yeah. being. So I'd like for us all to begin to value this for ourselves. We all need that kind of nurturing and loving and unconditional acceptance that we want to offer to our children. Yeah. I would imagine, I mean, if you just really put yourself in the shoes of the child, doesn't have the words or necessarily understanding of what's going on, but even kind of chronic anxiety and tension or depression, just imagine what a, an internal struggle that might be for, for a kid and the anxiety that that creates and for them and how that might show up in school. It, it, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking in a way, if you think about it. It is heartbreaking. It's not kind of, I would say, out and out. It's It's very, it's it's just plain heartbreaking. It is. Yeah. So in the study of kids of moms with depression and compared to addiction, we looked at kids' psychiatric disorders, not just average symptoms of depression or anxiety. These were psychiatric diagnoses by child's report and mother's report. So it's serious stuff. This is not to be taken lightly. Um, And you put it very well, the confusion and not being able to put words to it, then it comes out in anxiety and fear, fearfulness and, and sadness. Yeah. Well, okay, so clearly a major solution to this are the authentic connection groups. Uh, so can you kind of give us an overview? I know it's complicated, you know, the number of sessions, but can you give us a broad overview 
and then kind of delve into the the, the latter sequence approach over the over the six week program and tell us what the content, you know, general content is of the different sessions. So it's actually a 12 week program. I'm uh, sorry, 12 weeks, yes. Right, six months for the earlier one, but 12 weeks here, uh, three months here. Uh, general framework, Michael, is that the, it's grounded in that principle of everybody needs mothering and it's mutual support and loving. Based on authenticity, we are real, we're honest with each other, there's mutual respect and kindness. So this is the general framework within which the intervention is conducted with by usually a woman. I haven't had a male person do this because all my groups have been, uh, until the pandemic, they've been with, with women. Anyhow, so the task is to get us to connect in these real ways. And the way we get to that is through these 12 sessions, each one has a topic. And the, all these topics are geared around issues of basically connection, intimacy, and so on. So for example, difficult obstacles to reaching out or issues of shame in the workplace or trouble being assertive or issues of anger. So these are all examples of session topics. But right from the get-go, here's one of the most important things. And I mentioned this around the uh, early trials with the substance abusing moms. Right from the get-go, Michael, women are told so we are going, each of us, each of you is going to find someone who going to, who's going to be a coach, go-to person, preferably two if you can find, but let's start with one. Who is this someone with whom you feel safe psychologically? Doesn't have to be your best friend. It cannot be your partner. Why? Because so let me, yeah, just let me be clear. So this is, they're instructed to find somebody outside of the authentic connection group and so you're developing a process for continued support exactly. and authentic connection outside of the group once the group is over. Exactly. And this is the yeah. lesson I learned 20 years ago, 15 years, however mm -hmm. long that was. So what happens then is, and of course, people are shy and say, I can't think of anyone like that. A couple of people say, oh, all right, let's try patiently and slowly. Eventually, they all find somebody. And then what happens is, whatever, whatever the topic is today in the group, you have to go back and chat about this with your go-to person. Mm. And it's yeah. not just you say, well, today I talked about my difficulties with anger and how I do it, but also you get their take on what they feel around the same topic. So what happens then is this mutual give and take around an issue that is deep it's not shooting the breeze it's, it's meaningful to both of you which then does what it brings you closer now this happens every week for 12 weeks by the end of which not just have you cemented this closeness of bonds with the others in your group but also have developed it in your outside life hmm. now you have these multiple safety nets and oh, you know, wonderful yeah. yeah yeah and you know what it takes to maintain them right you have the skill set now too yeah you learned it and you practiced it. So you're giving them the support and the tools to do something that's uncomfortable until they become comfortable with it. Exactly right. And then yeah. built in, there's some practical things about coping. Like there's one session on that's called piling and how it's about basically mm -hmm. rumination, how we tend to pile different worries and, and how we can stop that. So there are some very concrete things too that can help uh, minimize the kind of angst that we sometimes churn ourselves up into. Yes. Yeah. So you, I think you refer to these outside individuals who become close as the go-to committee. I like that. So that's your new go-to committee. That's right. How, how many people do you recommend they connect with on the outside? I'd say no more than two or three. Two so a limited, 
Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, you can't be that intimate with, especially if you've got a home and a family and, you're, and kids. You simply don't have the time. Every, nothing good comes free. Everything takes time and effort. So if yeah. you want that level of intimacy with someone, you have to give it that kind of respect and time and energy that it takes to nurture that relationship and build it up. So I'd say even if you have two people, one fallback. Two is just, plenty. Two is plenty, yeah. as long as you can be sure and you're that comfortable that I, I'll call this person and feel safe. So one or two women will say, oh, I think I'll call, I'll use my sister or my ex-friend because we work close and I've got stuff to work out. And then no, 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 that's not the person not you the right choose. One. No, yeah. you choose someone with whom you feel safe. If not intimate, at least you don't feel like this person will be hurtful to you or will try and be kind to you. That's the ground rule. And pick one or two of these and we'll work with this. And so what happens is not just do the women talk to their go-tos after the session, but they have to come back and report the following week. Okay, so mm -hmm. what happened in your conversation? And I think one of the reasons in our open-ended data that women say these have been so successful, Michael, is because especially these very busy and powerful women say these groups keep me accountable. They yes. because every week I have to come back and say this is what I did. So someone holds me accountable for doing this. It's on my calendar that I have to do this, which then ensures that this caretaking happens of me and and, and takes root and crystallizes in my everyday life. It's brilliant, brilliant. Now, in in I came across uh, the term "good enough mothering." Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by that? And I, it, it's part of one of the sessions, isn't it, to talk about what is good enough mothering? Yeah. So that, of course, is an old psychoanalytic term, "good enough mothering." But in in the way that we use it in in AC groups is. Uh, how do you define in your own mind being a good mother or an adequate mother? You don't have to be a brilliant mother because none of us can be brilliant at anything all the time, leave alone at being a good mother or father all the time. So the question is really, what's in your mind about what a good mother is? What do you think is in your child's mind or your children's mind? How do they want you to be? And importantly, what are the things that come in your way that may, 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 may be obstacles in your ability to maintain that. So for example, Michael, when people say, well, women need to be taught about good parenting and it's not okay to say X, Y, and Z to your child or limit setting is important. And my response is, do you really think that a mother doesn't know, I shouldn't tell my child you should have died when you were born? You really think a mother doesn't know that? And what happens is, it, all of this happens when we are so exhausted and frazzled and even despairing. So mm -hmm. then this become, the task becomes, I ask, all right, Claire, what's coming in the way for you? And identify the issues and say, what can we do to begin to bring these down so you're able mm -hmm. to maintain that? Also, of course, always being on the same page with your child. Uh, because some kids prefer activities. Some people, kids prefer a hug, a good night. Talk to your child. So that's the whole thing about how do we get to good enough mothering without being overly perfectionistic and chastising ourselves for not being everything at all times to everybody. Yeah, that really, you know, that, that swirling potential swamp of guilt mm -hmm. that one can have uh, around, are you good enough? Perfectionistic tendencies. I'm not home enough. Is my child okay? Uh, and, and it was so beautifully articulated by a colleague, surgeon, a uh, friend of mine, Dr. Cynthia Harrington, when she, she said, uh, 
about the guilt that she felt when she has to go to work, you know, like now the child's being left alone and how are they feeling? And, and a lot of that guilt is more in the head than in reality. And I, I'm saying that with the vantage point of my own experience with my wife, as adult children now, they have enormous respect and they don't have a sense of like, I was deprived because you worked. In fact, they, they have a respect and they've learned so much by watching their mother work and be a professional. So there was so much positive and they never saw themselves as, as particularly uh, you know, deprived of their mother. And so I, I don't know, my experience is, is that a lot of that guilt is just you know, self-generated even. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yes, another thing I'm fond of saying is guilt is a universal experience of motherhood. <laughs> yes. It's almost like it's a given. We all feel it, right? And I'm yeah, sure fathers yeah. as well. Um, and you are right. For many of us, our standards are very high. And back to your, uh, your statement or paraphrasing what I say, which is a mom feels a child's guilt. 10 times more. It's the same thing that when you, you worry about your child's reactions, possibly way more than they are actually going to react negatively. That right. said, the child does say, mom, I don't want you to go to work. Mom, do you have to leave town again for a trip? Mm -hmm. There are, and perhaps a spouse saying, what, you really have another trip or you have another deadline? Uh, so it's not all self-generated. So much of it is, but there is a lot that comes from the outside too to say, you're not doing a good enough job. You're not, not absolutely yeah. in both situations yeah. at yes. work and as well as home. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, I hesitate to say in any instance, here, go change this about yourself and life will be fixed. Somewhat life will be fixed. If you'd stop justizing yourself and have these very unrealistic standards. But the fact is you're going yeah. to get these messages from the outside too. And as a yeah. society, we need to be cognizant of that as well and say, what are we doing to, alleviate some of that. Like, look at COVID now. Why are so many women outside the, out, out of the workforce? Why may, is this their perfectionism? No, it's because they, no. you know, you see what I'm going yeah. with this? I do. Totally. Absolutely. Well, uh, one other tiny bit about the authentic connection groups, and I thought this was just lovely, is the concept of a support wallet. Ah, yes. Just talk about that. It's just so beautiful. It, th that is probably the most magical thing. So about six weeks into, not six, about bang in the middle, we have a session where basically the women, uh, each of them has a card and in person, but they say what they really like, respected, my appreciated, appreciated about each of the other women in the group. So what happens is if there's six women there, you end up with five cards saying what people, what each other, each of the other people really like, respect, and admire about you. And this is not your hair or the way you speak or your... Right. It's really about, I would admire your candor, your, your thoughtfulness. And uh, I read, or the facilitator reads them all out loud. So it's, the degree to which women's hearts are touched is just so beautiful to see. Yeah. It's beautiful for me to see and beautiful for them to see. Yeah. And it's called Support Wallet. Why? Because in the old days when we met in person, they actually got these little index cards and I used to give them a little wallet in which to put these. And uh, the moms in the earlier substance abusing groups, they said, one of them said, I actually keep that wallet under the floor mat in my car because I'm so afraid I'll lose it. And I like to go back to it every now and then to 
So this is a very, very meaningful thing. Again, saying feeling seen and loved for the person you are at your core. And you have these five women who know you well because they've watched you talking about very uh, sort of precious intimate things. And here's what they're telling you. It's got to be real. So very, very meaningful. Very Just wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. I had a similar sort of experience. Uh, went to a self-compassion retreat and got to know people very well there. And you know, they, we did the same sort of exercise. Um, and as part of that, they gave us a little, a beautiful agate. And that is meant to be put in your pocket and carry it with you every day. And when you just happen to reach in your pocket, you're reminded of a strength that somebody else saw in you. And I, it, and I still carry that stone around to this day. I mean, that's how meaningful it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I had a stone like that, that I got from my own first therapist when I was in graduate school. I really? still for some such like a little transitional object that I could carry yeah. around and I still have it yeah. upstairs yeah yeah it, it just shows you the power of these things in our lives it's some really of the simplest incredible. things can be the most simplest yeah 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 all right now we're going to get into a little bit of science uh -huh. because you did conduct a randomized controlled trial of authentic connection groups compared to dedicated time off for health professional female mothers. Well, mothers are female by, yeah. I guess, definition. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that and the results of that trial? Yeah. So there were, all the women in the study were given free time by the Mayo Clinic administration here at Arizona. And half of them were in the intervention group and the other half used that one hour of free time to do whatever they wanted. Um, we had pre-intervention uh, assessments and post at the end of three months when the intervention was over and then three months follow-up. Uh, the assessments, the groups were led by this psychiatrist, uh, Judy Engelman, who was just outstanding. Uh, the assessments were multiple self-reports on depression, stress, aspects of child rearing, feeling loved and so on, but also cortisol we collected uh, at, at all three uh, time points. And essentially found uh, improvements, uh, relative, greater improvements among the intervention group, AC group mothers than the controls, things improved for them. But not just between pre and post, they actually further improved between post and three months later when the groups had stopped in the follow-up period. So this is solid evidence that they showed improvements while they were still attending the groups. But once the group stopped and they were going to their own networks and their own lives or groups in life as usual, the gains grew still further, the, the steeper slope up. So that's very powerful uh, evidence. And we saw this across all the indicators we measured pretty much, the different self-report things and the cortisol. So that was the first trial. And then the second trial was at uh, Mayo uh, Rochester uh, at the headquarters, and that was at nursing leaders. And once again, the same design and uh, once again had the same significant uh, gains. So it's, um, and with decent effect sizes, not, you know, this tiny, and no dropouts. In intervention. Right, that's, let's emphasize that, zero dropouts. I don't know right? any intervention trial no. where, yeah. That's just amazing. I yeah. was just stunned to see that. Can you, can you just tell us the, the, uh, the parameters that you looked at? Kind of just list those out, because I, I, I think they're important to hear. You mean the the measures or how? Yeah, the you, measures. Yeah. So there were things like, uh, well, obviously depression, general stress, uh, feeling loved, um, burnout at work, very important emotional exhaustion, 
uh, aspects of relationships with kids. And I can't remember exactly which ones, but so I'd, I'd say there were at least around seven to 10 of uh, these self-report measures. And I highlighted the ones that to me were the most important. Right. For me, depression and anxiety and, and burnout were the three most critical things for these physician moms, uh, burnout at and, work, right? But so I, I really, I'm sorry. So it was on all of these plus cortisol that- Right. Yeah. And I just, I think it's really worth emphasizing the fact that you had a three month program positive results were seen, but then, and I've seen the curves and I wish I could show them on the screen here because the slope of the curves, I, th I think in almost all of the mm -hmm. measurements mm -hmm. actually increased mm -hmm. from the end of the intervention to three months later. So you're done with the groups and three months later, you're even better than you were before. Is mm -hmm. that accurate? That's correct. So you go from, imagine if you put it in numbers, hypothetically, you go from a score of one to a score of three on well-being and from a, and then uh, at follow-up, you're at five or six. So there's yeah. Uh, yeah, that much of our increase, yeah. That's really stunning. So I, I imagine that you would attribute that to the presence of their new go-to committee. Exactly. And, and then the additional skills that they've learned during that time. You know, it's so astounding to me, Michael, that people feel like, why should we need this? Or why shouldn't we have this? We have to have this. And it's it's an experimental design about, you know, resilience, stress, and relationships. If you do have these people, if I can feel, I can call on Michael anytime, and I will. We make a once a week to chat, even if it's for three minutes and saying, life really sucks right now. Or, I'm, I'm struggling or, you know, I just had the best news. Any of the above. If you have that as a given in your life, it's like saying I go to yoga for my body or, you know, eat well as a regular thing, not, okay, I did it. Like I read a book, I did my intervention. I got close to somebody, now I'm done. It's, that's never the case. It needs to be ongoing. And that's why you see the regularity, the dependability, uh, all of these are great factors. And of course, a sense of safety uh, and being loved. All of these are critical ingredients as to why this is necessary and why it works. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you eat right, you exercise, you do yoga. And I don't think we recognize the critical nature of managing our mental status mm -hmm. through getting things out and being vulnerable. It's, it's no different than, you know, the diet or the exercise. It's just as critical and maybe even more critical to do that. I, I liken leaving my thinking alone up there as to being like stuff in a mixing bowl, just going around and round and round all the time and never forming anything until I get it out into the pan. And so I can see it, you know. Well, part of this is also maybe the American emphasis on rugged individualism, yeah. where it's part of a cultural thing that this is not something that is necessarily valued. It's yeah. so much easier to quote sell uh, an intervention that is solitary, mindfulness-based than one mm -hmm. which is emphasizing closeness and intimacy and love of yeah. relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you're absolutely right. When people say, I don't have the time, I say, seriously, one hour a week? I mean, how often do you go to the gym or think of, about going to the gym or commit to yeah. exercising? One hour a week to yeah. ensure that your mental health is taken care of and, 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 and nurtured. Are you really saying that you can't afford that? Well, that was the battle I had with the surgeons in my group in the, yeah. in the beginning, trying to get them to commit. Uh, but now they're all in because they know the power of it. So underneath that was what I said a while ago, Michael, is the 
uh, reluctance to quit is not necessarily obviously because they can't spare the one hour. It's because of all the other reservations underlying. So what am I getting into exactly? How much is going to be right. asked of me? Is this going to be touchy-feely? Is it going to be too painful? All of this <laughs> is there. So I can understand there is some hesitation, which is why I say, come and we'll try it in baby steps. You know? Give it a try in baby steps. Yeah. But acknowledge yeah. at the outset, I understand why you may have some uh, hesitation, sure. reluctance of yours even about doing this. That's a good point. I just want to read a few of the comments that were in the paper from the women in the group because mm -hmm. I thought they were so touching and meaningful. Uh, it's like I have a sister, a secret sisterhood, you're at work, or a safe and comforting place to share things we're all going through. And then the next thing was the shift from a focus on negatives was welcome. I was so tired of hearing about dif how difficult and stressful our work was. Now, when I bump into someone from my group, we smile and give each other a real or mental hug. Our groups help us women to connect around in a very positive way. And I mean, that those comments say it all. Yes, they really do. And I know that's one of the, one of the male comments. Yeah. 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 Well, Sudia, we're getting close to the end here. What is your experience uh, running authentic connection groups virtually? Oh, outstanding. As luck would have it, fortuitously, I had done a trial with, or I'd written a paper on it, maybe five or six groups that I ran myself sitting here in my office. Um, because I said, why not spread it? This makes no sense not to. And this is pre-COVID, pre-COVID. Pre yeah, so yeah. you were you were uh, prescient here then. Uh, well, prescient, maybe, yeah. <laughs> But uh, five groups happened and we published the paper and the results were again wonderful so that when COVID hit, I'm a scientist, so I tend not to believe that something should be done just because it sounds good or it sounds right. I always like to see the data behind it. And when COVID hit, I had the evidence right there that saying, yes, these groups can be done very effectively. And sometimes it's more effective on, on like virtually because you can see people who are not in your own home institution, which sometimes can be good. Like the example you just read from this one woman at Mayo. And other times people feel a little self-conscious if there are people you bump into in the corridors. So right. what happened with these virtual groups pre-COVID, the ones I'd set up, and also during COVID, was you're with counselors, let's say, from across the country, not in your school or your hospital. Um, and that that alleviates, again, a little bit of uh, self-consciousness um, among some people about being really real with their own colleagues. So, yes, it's all right. out there. Evidence has been done, and it, and it works. Okay, so Sunia, what kind of national recognition has authentic groups uh, received in terms of uh, validating this experience uh, scientifically? Well, outside of the business of academe, there were a couple of articles, one the Huffington Post and a couple of other newspapers, but also uh, public television. The local channel came and uh, did a some filming of me doing virtual groups. This was pre-COVID as well as in-person groups. And that was aired on national public television as well. All to say that it was, it's resonated well beyond academe and science. It's just women mm -hmm. read it, they watch the videos and the videos are up for people uh, to see if they like. It just speaks to all of us saying, so who doesn't want love? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and this and, is organized, predictable love in your real life. Who doesn't want that? Yeah, that's right. Beautiful. Well, Sunia, Sunia, thank you so much for being our guest on the Resilient Surgeon podcast. It's been a, a truly 
wonderful conversation with you. And, and you know, I, I, I will say I found you through my good friend, Ann Maston. And thank God she uh, turned me on to your presence because uh, it really opened my eyes to the power of, of authentic connection groups and, and, uh, and what it can do for, I think, groups not only for mothers, but also for men, you know, human beings. Right. Yes, we did run a men's yeah. group, and they, well, they work too. So this is not okay. just for women. And good, good. very big thank you to Anne. Of course, we go back a long way. And right. this is where I usually say thank you for having me. But really, thank you for having me. I've so enjoyed this chat with you. <laughs> it goes beyond the usual. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much. And 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 a and a serious thank you for. I mean. As I sit here and I look at your contributions over the many years, I mean, you've come from India, you were, your, your spark was generated there that day with the I'm okay, you're okay. And, and look at what you have brought to so many people through the work of your, of your lifetime. It's really, it's brilliant, it's heartwarming, and it's just so, so valuable. And I, I a sincere thank you for all that you've done on that front. Very kind, thank you, That's thank yeah. you. That's very kind, thank you. Now, finally, where can people reach you if they, they if they want to become a part of an authentic connections group or if they want to speak to you individually, where could they reach out and find you? Just email me. It's sluther, S-L-U-T-H-A-R, at uh, acgroups.org. Great. Well, we'll put that in the show notes too then. Yeah. So. Well, Sunia, thank you so much. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Right. I look forward right. to more chats with you, Michael. There will be. Thank All you. Right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.